You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is the book of Haggai, and the reading for today comes from Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is God's word. Well, Aaron preached my sermon for me already, so this will be the shortest sermon I will ever preach. Um, but no, I'm, I've loved studying this book. I really have. Um, so if you have your Bibles, um, you may turn to the book of Haggai. It is uh, the shortest book of the minor prophets other than Obadiah. Uh, only two chapters, so I am renowned for preaching longer than I should. So because my book is short today, hopefully I will not be going an hour. Um, but we'll see what the Lord does. Um, <laughs> This book is not big in length, um, but it is, it is big in message. And that's because the one who wrote it is a big God. And when God speaks, we listen. And so I want to just pray for us real quick for us to listen to what God has to say. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to see you through your word to see you through your words specifically that you delivered to us through Haggai, your messenger, so many, so many centuries ago, but that still speaks to us today because God, you are with us. And so thank you, Lord, that you are. Help us, Lord, to see you today. Help us to praise you today. Help us to be changed by your word today, Lord. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So the message of this book is a uh, profound but simple one. Um, so actually uh, just have the slides people have one job, and that is to put my one slide up when the time comes. And that's it. That's all I will put in front of us today because it's a simple book with a simple message. Um, but it's a profound one. And I love that because simple messages allow you to meditate on them um, and reflect on them over and over and over again because they easily come to mind. But profound messages also work their way down deep into your center and they change you. So that's actually where I want to start the book of Haggai, which is in the middle, at the heart. Um, we've actually looked at a lot of these minor prophets front to back. Our good friend Micah Scott, i.e. Hakeem, if you were here that week, looked at it from back to front. But today we're looking at Haggai from the inside out. So that is my structure for today uh, because that's how God works in us. 
He starts at the heart and then he moves his way outward. So here's the message. The message of the book of Haggai is that God is with us. That's the message. That I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And that's it. That's going to remain up no matter what else I say because that's what I want y'all to pay attention to. This entire sermon, everything I say, the implications of everything that we see in Haggai is because of that right there. That I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. So God is with us and that changes everything about us. That's the theme. That's the theme of Haggai. So, this promise that God gives in Haggai is one that he's been making across all of scripture. And that is the promise that I am with you, that God is with us. And as we look at this book and we meditate on this promise, I'm going to show us also how God speaks to us through Haggai to give two implications, two applications of that promise, two commands based on that promise. So that's our structure. That's what we're going to be doing. But again, the promise is this, that I am with you. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that. That God is with us. And there are no words which I have which can adequately communicate how big or how great or how magnificent that promise is, but through the vestiges of the cold that I've been fighting through this week, and hopefully not cough too much, I will try. So I'm happy for it. I'm happy to do it. So I'm going to read the two places that this promise really appears in this book. One we already read, uh, that Chad read for us in verse 13 of chapter 1. It says, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And then it appears again in chapter 2, verse 4, where God speaks to his people through Haggai. And he says, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people in the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts. So, I mentioned before that the message of this book is simple, uh, but it is profound. And so is that promise, this promise that I am with you. And when we come to really big things in scripture, um, I think it's helpful in our meditation to think about them in the form of questions and to ask questions of the text, which we've already seen that in say like the book of Habakkuk where God brings really hard, or Habakkuk brings really hard questions before God. This is a little different. That's just I want us to look at this the eye. And the eye is God. That God says this. And as I've meditated on that this week, I wonder how much of scripture we just get used to seeing and reading without thinking about the fact that it is God saying this. But it is God saying this promise and God putting himself in the middle and said, I am with you. So God, just to break him down a little bit, is the creator of all things. He is the one who spoke everything that you see and everything you can't into existence. He created everything. He created the stars. He created the galaxies. 
He created the earth, the trees of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, every animal on the earth that can walk or crawl or run. He made the littlest parts of creation, the protons and neutrons and the periodic table of the elements for you science folks out there. Like God made that. God made those things. He made light and darkness and he made wind and rain and the sky and the clouds and the oceans and dirt. Just by saying, let there be. That's the God who is in this promise. And he's not just the creator, he is the ruler of all things. That he holds all things together. Like, he didn't just create it and step back. But God is, in his creation, keeping the universe flowing and running. Sustaining its order and its movement. And this is the God that says, I am with you. But then... God is great. Yes, God is big. God is creator. God is ruler. But in his word, he also shows us not just his might, but his character, which is so important that that's why we come to the scriptures or see God for who he truly is. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of religions, there's a lot of gods out there that proclaim themselves as creators and rulers, but the character is different. The character is what makes God stand out. Yes, he does. He is truly the one who created all things. But who is this God? Well, in Exodus 3, he says to Moses, he says to Moses, I am who I am. But like, well, who is he? Like, Moses came to God in the burning bush and asked God well, you're sending me to this people. Who do I tell them that they, who do I tell them who sent me? And God said, I am who I am. And at that time, God linked that to the fact that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it's not until Exodus 34 when Moses says to God, let me see your glory. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he speaks. And then he speaks. And then he says, our scriptures translate this or say this, the Lord, the Lord. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the literal in there. I am who I am. I am who I am is a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is rich in love. He is rich in truth. He is patient. He is forgiving. And he is just. And all in here in the name, I am who I am. My Hebrew professor liked to translate it this way. I will be who I will be. That he is by necessity unchanging in these things. So you can even mix it up. I am who I will be. I will be who I am. God never changes in the way that he reveals himself to us, in his character that he displays. He is unchanging. He will never not be these things. He will always be these things. And so 
what happens when you put together the might of God, the power, the sovereignty, the authority of God, and then you put it together with his character, his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his love. What do you do when you put those two things together? Well, I'm going to zoom back to the last couple books that we've studied. I'm going to start in Habakkuk, and I'm going to read a, a section that we've become familiar with. But it's in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 where Habakkuk writes, you march across the earth with indignation, you trample down the nations in wrath, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked, you strip him from foot to neck, you pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak, and you tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. And... He is the God of Zephaniah 3, 15 through 17, which we've also become familiar with because it's our benediction that we've been saying week after week as we've gone through this, these books. But I'll, I'll read it again because it's worth remembering. Chapter 3 of Zephaniah, verses 15 through 17. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, I am who I am, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. And you take God's might, and you take his authority and his power and his kingliness, and you take his character his love, his grace, his compassion, and you put them together, what do you get? You get a savior. That is who God is. God is a savior. And to be a savior in the Bible is to be a warrior. Notice that in Zephaniah, that God is a warrior who saves. And Israel's definition of salvation throughout the Old Testament almost always referred to a physical defeat of the enemies which threaten to overwhelm and conquer them. And so the Old Testament understanding of salvation was that of victory, often in the face of certain, or you might even think of it another way, a deserved defeat. I mean, you think about something like the book of, um, in the book of, uh, I think it's Second Kings, like after a string of kings who are unfaithful and you have a, a good king Hezekiah and Assyria is coming against Israel, there's been, at that point in time, centuries of unfaithfulness to God. But what does God do in the face of seeing his people, in the face of seeing his people's king coming before him humbly, asking, asking the Lord to save them? What does he do? He saves them. He rescues them. He defeats Assyria. And that's, that's a picture of how God works, is that when God is a warrior who saves the victory that he grants in the salvation that he offers is often not deserved. But he is the one who is able to fight battles on behalf of his people who has made a covenant relationship with and he wins. He wins. And that's why Haggai refers to God as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies we heard it earlier 14 times in two chapters. 14 times 
why was that such a, a picture for Haggai of who God was and for his people? It's because God commands the heavenly armies without number. If you want a picture of that, you can go to, I believe it's also 2 Kings, where you have Elisha. And the nation of the Aramaeans coming to capture him and his servant says to him, well, I don't see who all is on our side. And Elisha prays to God, open, your eye, open his eyes. And Elisha's servant opens his eyes and he sees a chariots. He sees chariots of fire without numbers surrounding them. And that's the army which God commands. And that's the army that God commands on behalf of his people on behalf of his people to do what? To save them. He is the warrior who saves. And that's the second part of this question, is he uses his display and his might to rule and save who? I am with you. I am with you, my people. God has a people who has, he has revealed himself to and placed himself in their midst. So God is with us. He is not distant. He is not far off. He's not so transcendent and unknowable as to be unapproachable as he is in some religions. But he is near to people and he is with us and he is a, he's even a part of his people. That's how God thinks of himself. He's a part of his people. And in Haggai, that people is Judah, specifically is who this book is written to. Israel in general. But Judah is, is the book. Uh, Judah is the particular audience of this book uh, who have just returned from Babylon. But the point is that God freely and independently of any action which they took. In fact, they took a lot of the opposite actions, right? I mean, they were exiled for a reason. But independently of any action, any merit which they had or did not have, that he placed his presence in the midst of a nation and said, I am your God and you are my people. And now that people is us. That people is us. Because that's what God has said in 1 Peter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race. It's Peter speaking to the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How is that possible? How is it that we are now God's people? And that's because this promise is not just words. It's not just words which God spoke. But today is the day to remind us that no matter where we are, no matter how we came in, no matter how we leave, that this promise is a person. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So when Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. God's promise to his people in Haggai is himself. God's promise to his people in Matthew is Jesus Christ. He is the promise. 
Jesus Christ is the one who came to save people from their sins. He is that promise. So the message that Haggai delivered to God's people is no matter what they've been through, no matter how far they've strayed, no matter how long they had been unfaithful and even seen the temple destroyed, which was the place where God had said his presence would be among his people, no matter if they had been exiled, no matter all those things, God was with them. God was still with them. So, no matter what we've been through, no matter what you've been through today, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter what you've done, even if it feels like you've been walking through exile like Israel did, even if your faith feels small today and you can't overcome sin, no matter all of those things, God is here and Jesus is here and Jesus is with us. He is the promise. He is the one who resides with, dwells with, bears with his people because he is a part of us. He came and he lived and he died as a part of a people. And he said, as his name, I am with you, that I am God and I am with you. And he is able to be a part of us because he is the warrior who saves. God's character is unchanging, y'all. Kurt made, it, made, it, made a great point last week that people can sometimes get it twisted and see the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament as two different gods. They're like, how can I reconcile Jesus and the seeming grace and compassion and love that he has with the God I see in the Old Testament who seems to just judge and is wrathful? Like, how does that work? Well, Jesus is the same God. He is the warrior who saves. He just fought the battle differently. He took his sword and he turned it upside down and instead of wielding it to slay physical enemies, he was, nailed to the, he was nailed to it. He was nailed to it to kill it forever. And then when that was done, he got up. He got up with unquenchable life. And that life he now gives to us through his spirit. And his Holy Spirit is, that's God's presence in actually each of us. Like, if you're here today and you believe in Jesus, guess what? God is actually with you, like in you, a part of you, changing you, giving you life, life which cannot be taken, life which is of the same nature as what God has, eternal life, because God is actually with you. And God is with us. He is the promise, and that promise is a person. Jesus Christ. I want us to really believe that today. If you never believe that today, guess what? Today is the day. And if you already believe that, remind yourself of this. That God is with you. God, the warrior who saves, the creator, sustainer, gracious, kind, loving, ruler, and sustainer of all things is with you, with us, sustaining us and changing us, not just leaving us as he found us. Yes, he, he takes us as we are and he saves us as we are, but guess what? Who we were wasn't pleasing to God, so he changes us. 
and he makes us more like him. God's promises change the ones who receive them. So what does this great promise do among God's people in Haggai and what does it do among us? What implications does it have? Well, there's two that I want to draw our attention to specifically. And I love that because they encompass the entire person. In the Old Testament, you had two parts to yourself. You had your heart and your body, your inner man, your outer man. You're the center of who you were and the body which was part of that. So we have an internal command and an external command. The first is consider your ways. And I want to read, uh, Aaron already referenced a little bit of this, but I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. The Lord of hosts says this, The people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this, Think carefully about your ways. Consider your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Not very fun sounding. The Lord of hosts says this, Think carefully about your ways. Consider your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and beast, on all that your hands produce. So this command, again, has the internal focus. It goes to the hearts of the people and commands them to think carefully and deeply about what they have been prioritizing and what they should prioritize. I actually love the more literal translation of the Hebrew here. It says, set your heart upon your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. And that's the invitation that we have today is that if God is with us and truly among us and a part of us, consider if your ways are his ways, if your priorities are his priorities. The context of Isaiah, you can really find in chapters three through four of the book of Ezra, that Judah has returned from the land, returned to the land, excuse me, from exile in Babylon. So they begin to rebuild the temple. They got the altar set back up. And they started putting the foundation down for the temple. So they're working on the foundation. And then the peoples in the surrounding nations got wind of this. And they're not, they don't like it. So they go all the way up to the king at the time, the king of Persia. And they said, hey. Is what it says. And so it sat. Temple sat there for 15 years. 15 years until this time. And so then that's why in the, in the first verse of the book of Haggai, it says in the second year of King Darius, brand new king, 
brand new king, which is when sometimes there's a lot of, you know, different things going on. You know, you can probably get by with new stuff that you can get, get by with old stuff under the old king. So it's like golden opportunity, right? We can start work again. The old king's gone. Maybe there's can be, can be a little shuffle. Maybe, maybe we can start, you know, re doing work again. And the people said the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So that moment of self-reflection, when the people made a judgment call to not prioritize the promise of I am with you, which was signified by the temple, that's when God speaks a judgment of his own. And he says, you have been focused on building your wealth to your own ends instead of directing it towards mine. So God says, consider your ways. Consider what you've been doing. Consider how I've been trying to get you to pay attention that you've been chasing the wrong things. You've been neglecting my house. You've been building up yours. Now, I want to say that God can be glorified in the everyday pursuits of life. There's nothing wrong with that. In the judgment of verses, in verse 6, he says, you planted much but harvested little. There's nothing wrong with planting. There's nothing wrong with harvesting. There's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with building up a house. All of these things are ways in which we can pursue and honor God. But pursuing your house to the neglect of God's house, that is sinful. Pursuing your ways above God's ways is sinful. Jesus said it well that you cannot serve two masters for you will love one and hate the other. That you cannot serve both God and mammon. That's the untranslated word meaning money, riches, the stuff of life. You cannot serve both. You have to pick one. You will love one and hate the other. So these people were trying to serve two masters. God says, you got to pick me if my name is here, if my presence is here among you. I am the priority, what I prioritize, because I am with you. I am God. I am with you. And it's clear in verses uh, 6 through 9 of chapter 2 that God prioritizes his house that he wants to fill his house with glory in a final glory that will be even greater than the first temple, which was destroyed, which God says is like, are, don't, are there a few of you who remember what it looked like and now you weep because of what you see now? Think about that house. What I'm doing is greater than that if you will prioritize what I'm doing. God's desire is his glorified presence dwelling in the midst of his people who live in a manner that honors and displays his everlasting, everlasting worth, his worth. Our lives are not meant to be displays of the things which we consider valuable, which is what God considers valuable. And together now in Christ, we we are that house. And that's the fulfilled promise of what Haggai gives to his people. It's like, there's a greater house that I'm doing here. There's a greater house. And guess what it is? It's not the, the building that ends up replacing what was there because the glory of that house, guess what, was just not as good as the first one. The greater house coming is the church. 
the place, the dwelling place of God with his people. We already talked about it through the Spirit. And we are so quick to shortchange the things that we can pursue, right? Like we think we know what we want. We think we're fulfilling the desires in our lives, but when we come to the desires and think that there's sustenance or even abundance, guess what? Verse 15 and 16 of chapter two, God says, now reflect back from this day before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple. What state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, guess what? It only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, guess what was there? It only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, but you didn't turn to me. What we think we can pursue in this life without considering what we were made to do, what we were created to do, will never provide the satisfaction that we think will be there when we come to it. That's the point. 50 measures of whatever you're pursuing without God, never, it's never enough. It's only ever 20. It's only ever 10, 5. It's never what you think it's going to be because it's temporary, because it's, it's ultimately not what we were created for. We are created to pursue and prioritize the things of God, to follow his ways, to worship him, to devote ourselves to the lives which he called us to do. That's the value and we already read that, that's treasure in heaven. That's treasure in heaven that no man can steal or destroy because that's the stuff of real value. And guess what? God actually showed the people this. In this book, he says in 1 verse 11, God summoned a drought and he named specific things which are impacted. I'll read them, he says, on the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. Why were those things called out? Well, what's the Lord's Supper made of? Grain and wine, bread and wine. It was part of sacrifices the people offered throughout the Old Testament and became part of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, grain and wine. What was olive oil for? It was for consecrating the priests who were set aside to the service and devotion of God. So God is saying, these are the elements of, of my presence, which you were created to taste and see and are good, but you're not pursuing that. You're not using those things for actually devoting yourself to me. You're neglecting communion with me is what that means because you've forgotten my promise, the same promise I've been making you since you making to you since you walked out of Egypt. That's what it says in chapter 2 verse 5. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. What was the promise? Work for I am with you. I am with you was always the promise. And he said I've been showing you. It's been there since the beginning. But you forgot me. <laughs> Like it says to the, uh, the church in Ephesus in Revelation, you've forgotten your first love. But guess what? We can set our heart on these promises. That's the grace of it. When God says, set your heart on your ways, he's saying, see, you can actually see where 
You've deviated from this, where you've deviated from what you're created to do. And then he says, guess what? In consideration of this, you can actually set your heart on my ways instead of yours. Like, again, that's the beauty of God being with us is that he shows us. He tells us and he shows us. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us to go willy-nilly off on our own, to wander around like we don't know how to follow him. He tells us and he says, guess what? It can be done. Because in Christ, he gives us a new heart, which actually can do this. See, that's the point is that this promise that we see in Haggai was not yet come to full fruition. God says, consider, consider your ways, set your heart on your ways. Well, guess what? You still got the same old heart. It's not been changed. But that's what God promised. In the book of Ezekiel, he said, I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And then he says in Jeremiah, guess what's going to be on that heart? My law, my instruction. That's where it will be. It's not going to be on two tablets of stone hanging out in the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be in you. It's going to be right here. So when he says consider, yes, it's a call to those people at the time, but it's, a, it's the promise that we now have. That we actually can set our heart on God's ways. Because that's where in Christ, through the Spirit, we actually have a heart that can set our hearts to his ways. And so what's the end result of that command though? To set your heart on his ways. What does it look like to consider and prioritize God's desires and goal and will? That's the other command, which is where I'll end, which is work. And that's what I'll, I'll read verses two, through, two, four through five again. It says, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. That's the implication of the promise. That's the argument. Work, for I am with you. Because I am with you, work. Do the work. So we don't stop at considering. We don't stop at setting our heart. The Christian life is not simply just an internal battle, an internal struggle to follow God's ways. It's us actually doing them. We take that internal call to prioritize what God wants, and then we take action to show that we do it. God says work, but then guess what God says? Verse 7, chapter 1, go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house. God says, go up into the hills, cut down a tree, get the wood. You want to prioritize my house? Go get the wood and let's build it. Go get it and let's do it. So if we want to follow God today, guess what? In consideration of God's ways, who are the who's the temple? The temple is us. The temple is the church. Build the church. Talk to each other. Pray for each other, serve each other, love one another, share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus because he's still building the church. The mission of the church, building the church, that's what we're still called to do.
serve physical needs. Give of what God has given you for the benefit of others, not just yourself. Outdo one another in showing honor. All of these things, anything, the scriptures are full of ways to follow God's heart in what we do with all of our days. They're inexhaustible. Study the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures, pray. God, I don't have these desires. I have not prioritized you. Lord, I repent. Guess what? We can do it. We can do it. We can do it because of the spirit that God has given us, the heart that he's given us in order to do the things that he prioritizes, to do what we are always meant to do. Adam and Eve in the garden, what were they given to do? To work and attend the garden. Guess what? Adam sinned, Eve sinned, we all fell. Jesus saves us. We're still working and tending the garden. We're still working and tending the place of God's presence, and that's the church. That's us. That's reaching out to the world to show them the life that we have, to show them the life that we were always meant to have and be a part of God bringing the church together until its full and final glory is revealed with the new heavens and the new earth and God coming down to actually physically dwell with his people in a way that everyone can see. Coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new place of God's presence. That's the future we're headed for. That's what we're created to do. That's the thing that God gives us to do. And how is it possible? It's possible because of yet not I, but Christ in me. That it's God who stirs up the spirit of these people. It says it, verses 14 through 15. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people that begin work on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. That it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good purposes. So, there's grace, but there's also a command is the grace is that if these aren't our prioritized prior priorities today we can come to god and we can say lord i need help with this that's every day and god says guess what i will stir your spirit i will do this i will do the work within you so that you can do the work i've created you to do and it always comes back to that promise right i am with you the Lord over all things, the warrior and sovereign king who saves us is also with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that today is always the day to come to you. And Lord, we don't do it perfectly every day, but each day we can come to you. <coughs> that you have given us the grace in Christ to come to you because of the, what he did for us to take our sins, to nail them to the cross, to give us life, to give us the life that you always desired for us. The Lord, each and every day we can wake up and we can say, Lord, you are my Lord. 
you are with me today. So help me, Lord, to set my heart on your ways and to work. Lord, help us where we've fallen short. Lord, we repent where we have not prioritized your ways, where we have prioritized the building up of our own lives and our own kingdoms rather than yours. Lord, we ask for your grace. Lord, we rely on your mercy to help us, to change us, to help us see that you are with us. You are always with us. And that because of that, you are with us, Lord, to galvanize us and to help us live lives that pursue your pursuits, to prioritize your priorities, to will your will, and to work your work. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus without whom none of this would be possible. We praise you, God. We thank you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.